Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart. I'm your host, and I'm just thrilled to be with you on another episode here. And before we dive into today's topic, I would like to ask if you have found this podcast beneficial to you or someone you love, will you please go to the podcast app or wherever you can leave a review on iTunes or, or wherever, and please give it a rating and a review. Just take a minute and please do that because it will actually make it easier for other people to find this life-changing information, and I definitely want people to have access to good resources. I'm so grateful for all of your support and the support of all the wonderful guests that I've had on this podcast over the last couple of years. So thanks so much for doing that, and let's dive into today's topic. I'm excited to introduce you to Mari Lee. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified sexual addiction therapist and supervisor, and a certified partner's trauma therapist and supervisor, and a certified mindfulness-based addiction therapist and supervisor. She has a private practice in California. She also is a coach for therapists who are trying to do better therapy, but also work on and expand their businesses. Mari is very creative and has done a lot of writing and producing other resources in supporting people who are treating clients dealing with pornography, sexual addiction, and betrayal trauma, as well as direct support to clients. And I'm going to put links to all her books and resources and websites and all the stuff that she's doing in the show notes. So I encourage you to check that out because she's a good one to follow. She has a lot of great resources. And I think you'll see as we talk that she is a tremendous resource for all of us. In our episode today, Mari and I talk about mindfulness as a really powerful way to offer healing to people that are impacted by pornography addiction and sexual addiction, as well as betrayal trauma. And mindfulness sometimes is misunderstood, and it's not something that a lot of clinicians actually are trained in and understand how to use. And Mari has um, set up a program, a certification program for training therapists in mindfulness practices, and she'll share more about that in the podcast. But in this episode, we're going to talk about why mindfulness, why does it matter for clients that are trying to heal from these things, and what does mindfulness look like, and how can, how can it be helpful in the process of healing. So I'm going to jump right into my interview with Mari Lee. Well, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast, Mari. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's really such an honor and pleasure to be here. We are going to talk about mindfulness today and yeah, the benefits of mindfulness for healing betrayal trauma and sexual addiction, both of those. But before we dive into the uh, topic, I would love to know, um, you know, just a little bit about yourself and what led you to do this work that you're doing right now. Well, I'd be happy to share. So as you know, um, and I think you've shared with your listeners, I'm a a uh, psychotherapist that specializes here in California in working with partners of sex addicts and sex addicts. And I've been doing this work for 
years and years when, you know, the dinosaurs began to walk. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and love it, love the specialization. And, you know, I first came into this work, gosh, it's been close to 20 years ago now, by way of uh, this specialization, I should say, by way of my thesis in graduate school. I spent some time as a kid in foster care, as you, I think you know, Jeff, and uh, I thought, you know, for sure, okay, that's what I'll do my thesis on. I'll focus on, you know, um, transitioning out of foster care and, you know, what the rates of success are in that. And during that time and starting to gather research on that, I discovered that my significant other at that time was profoundly addicted to internet pornography. Mm. And, you know, I just, pornography was just never really a part of my life. Um, wouldn't say I'm a prude by any means, and I'm more of a live and let live with respect type of a human being. But given the rates of sexual trafficking and really how women are objectified in pornography, it was just never part of anything that I wanted to explore. And this was pretty hardcore pornography that he was dabbling in. Nothing crossing the line in terms of legal issues, but just it was just you know, impactful. There was a lot of deception and gaslighting around that. Um, and it was hard. It was a struggle. And so because of um, experiencing that betrayal trauma and everything that comes along with being the partner of somebody who's profoundly addicted to pornography and all of the deception that comes along, at least, you know, with many partners, and certainly it was in our relationship at that time, um, I thought, you know what, I'm, I need to get support around this and I need to, there has to be other women out there who are dealing with the same sort of woundedness. And what I discovered was there actually wasn't a lot of support for partners at that time. Mm. And, you know, my brain is one that thinks, okay, well, then I will create that support. Right, right. <laughs> right, you know, if it's not out there, you know, build it and they will come. So I began doing research and wrote my thesis on. It was a big, huge 200-page thesis that took a couple years to complete, but I wrote it on the impact of pornography addiction on the female significant other. And um, it was, you know, really interesting, and that, that thesis actually went on to become um, the, you know, Facing Heartbreak, the workbook that I ended up co-writing um, for partners. So that's how I got into the work itself, and I've been doing it for a long time, and I just really love the work. Yeah, that's an amazing story, and I'm I'm so glad that you, uh, you know, paid attention to what was going on for you and didn't just stay with your original plan. Not that that couldn't have been a great contribution to the field, but the contributions you've made in supporting partners and and even how that actually helps people heal with addiction as well to understand these things and have more empathy. It's been tremendous, and I'm just I'm just thrilled that uh, that you've shared these things that you stayed with it. So. Yeah. So, so what about mindfulness then? Where, where did mindfulness start to show up in your life, either personally and obviously now professionally? Tell me about that journey for a minute. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, so personally, in terms of mindfulness, I'm, I, I happen to be a woman of faith and have always really practiced that mindfulness space every day for myself. I really love going on walks in the morning. And so that's my time. And I, you know, that to be really present with myself, to be very centered for me to have that time with God and sometimes to go into prayer. And so for me, especially during that time where I was going through so much betrayal trauma in the relationship. And of course, my significant other was, you know, going through his own eventual recovery from, from that addiction. It was 
so important for each of us, him and his sex addiction, porn addiction recovery, and me and my partner's recovery, to have the tools of mindfulness, not just going on walks or or, you know, some people might think of mindfulness as sort of like forcing yourself into a lotus position and, um, <laughs> you know, it's really, that's not really what it's about at all. But I noticed that without having mindfulness in my life, it became much more difficult for me to manage triggers, to manage the trauma that came around that betrayal. And also I noticed with my significant other that it was, you know, incredibly difficult for him to maintain long-term sobriety without having mindfulness in place. And so that's how it came into my personal life where I really began to practice that now over 20 years. But in my professional life, going through, you know, sex addiction certification process and now being what I would say a leader in that field and teaching others and supervising others who are going through the certification process for partners, trauma, I'm talking about therapists and, right. uh, and, and also sex addiction work. Um, one of the things that colleagues in our clinical community really have faced over and over again with clients who are trying to recover from sex addiction and porn addiction or really any addiction because oftentimes there's that multiple addiction interaction going on. So you might have the pothead and the porn addict or the person who's overeating and going to strip clubs or whatever, you know, whatever the, the um, addiction is mm -hmm. without having a mindfulness component to the treatment plan, it is very difficult for individuals to maintain long-term sobriety. And so they may, you know, get a few months under their belt and they may have these cognitive tools that they're learning in therapy, which are really important and tasks that they're doing to maintain sobriety. But that is just one piece of it. We really have to look at how mindfulness impacts the brain, the limbic system, the polyvagal, all of the polyvagal theory, you know, the vagus nerve, everything that's going on within that human being's body, how that person has been wired. And if they're dealing with a, um, what we call a dual diagnosis, right? A comorbid uh, diagnosis, let's say they have an anxiety disorder or depression, mindfulness is even, you know, that much more important to help that human being to be aware of what's going on in their body and their mind to teach them really to teach them really specific ways of maintaining long-term sobriety. So beginning to do that research in my clinical work over the last 10 years has been, you know, just profound that the outcomes that, that we've been seeing by incorporating mindfulness tools in recovery plans. It really has been life-changing for human beings that I work with in my practice. So that's my personal journey around mindfulness in a nutshell and also why I think it's so important to incorporate that professionally. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, if, if, if mindfulness isn't just sitting around in a lotus position chanting, then, which I think, again, a lot of people think that, right? This is sort of when we think of mindfulness, we automatically think meditation or meditation practice. And I think mindfulness is a bigger umbrella term, right? Oh, yes. Mindfulness definitely. is much bigger than any one type of practice. Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When, when we think about mindfulness, the neat thing about mindfulness is 
the word really tells you what it is. It's the mind being fully present, right? Mindful. The mind is fully attending to what's happening, you know, what you're doing, the space that you're moving through. And, you know, for some people that might feel like, well, you know, um, that seems really easy, but but it's very rare, especially in our age of electronics. And don't get me wrong, I love my electronic gadgets. Don't know what I wouldn't do without my smartphone, my laptop, my tablet, all of that good stuff. But we are a culture now over the last 20 years, our brains are changing because of electronics. Mm -hmm. So we are just not as present with ourselves, our loved ones. We are not mindful. We are not fully present where our mind is, you know, where our body is, our mind is not often there. And so, you know, I think about mindfulness as just that you know if you will that basic human ability you know that to really be fully present to be fully aware of where we are what we're doing and not overreacting or overwhelmed by what's going on around us and that can be very challenging for example for partners of sex addicts or porn addicts who have been deeply betrayed their brains are you know on high alert they're their, their brains are wired in toward hypervigilance. They are traumatized. They are, sh you know, shut down. And so it's not unusual for partners of sex addicts to share with me in my clinical work or our group work or when I'm out speaking somewhere to say, I just feel like I'm moving through a fog. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not really present with myself. I feel like I've lost the ability to be able to make rational decisions. I hear myself screaming at my husband or I'm collapsing in tears and on the shower floor or I'm driving and I'm missing my off ramp or I'm starting to feel super forgetful about things that I never would have forgotten about before my mom's birthday or picking up my child from school. And that's what trauma does to the brain. That is, an, that is a trauma response. That's PTSD. So when we can incorporate mindfulness tools, specific ways of teaching partners of sex addicts to be present, even though they are moving through uh, this grieving process, even though they're moving through feelings, justifiable feelings of anger, shame, rage, confusion, betrayal, trauma, and help them weave in tools of mindfulness in very um, intentional ways. This is a game changer in the recovery work for partners of addicts. And same thing for addicts. When that addict is triggered because the brain is wired in, we know, you know, that dopamine is that, that real powerful hormone that's dumped into the bloodstream for that sex addict or that porn addict through, you know, um, orgasm. So the human orgasm is a powerful reinforcer of behavior. So boss yells at you, at work, or you have an argument with your spouse or partner, and then that sex addict is looking for the easiest way to numb out. And dopamine is what? The morphine of the brain. So it's really easy to go back to those behaviors to calm and soothe, to find that trigger, to not feel so bored or lonely, to go to sleep, whatever it is. And helping addicts in recovery, no matter what the addiction is, learn how to be mindfully present and give them specific tools far beyond just sitting, you know, and breathing. It's so much more than that. It's everyday practical tools to weave in uh, is, is a game changer for um, managing triggers, uh, managing trauma and long-term recovery. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I'm really hearing you say, and I, I've seen this also in my, my clinical work that there are more similarities with, um, 
betrayal trauma and sexual addiction, pornography addiction than people realize in terms of just the amount of reactivity that's going on in people's brains and bodies. And, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say def- definitely so. That's a beautiful um, way of putting that, Jeff. And then the caveat to that, of course, is for partners who may be listening that you didn't ask for that trauma. Oh, yes, of course. You didn't ask. <laughs> that trauma. So while the similarities may be there, partner didn't ask to be traumatized that way. And we know that obviously, right? Correct. And then what I would say to any addicts that might be listening is addiction is always rooted in trauma. Mm-hmm. Always. So it's not about somebody just, you know, I just have to white knuckle it, or I just don't have a good moral compass, or I'm just not strong enough, or I'm just a weak-willed person. It's not about that. At the root of addiction, always, we know this, Jeff, as clinicians, is unresolved trauma in that human being. So oftentimes when I'm working with, you know, men dealing with sex addiction, and sometimes females, although I do work with more uh, male sex addicts, They'll say, well, I don't want to get into all that childhood stuff, Lori. You know, I don't want to have to deep dive into my past. You know, I, I don't want to deal with all that. And I'll say, well, I appreciate that, but we're going to do that because, you know, while you may not live in the past, the past is living in you. And so we have to understand where that trauma, that unresolved trauma is hanging out. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally going to use that phrase, by the way. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm going to say it again because I think it's important that that part of the reactivity that is going on for people dealing with addictions is that the past is very much alive in them and yes. they absolutely need to slow down that reactivity. And because addiction's a flight, it's a flight from the trauma, it's a flight from the discomfort. Uh, there's so much going on beneath the conscious awareness. And again, like you said, and I appreciate the, uh, the, the follow-up on that for the partners to make sure that no partner ever feels like she brought this on herself because... Uh, that is absolutely not the case. Uh, but the reactivity is what we're speaking about today, about how to slow that down, about how to become more present, centered. And whether something's been done to you or you're doing things and acting out, whatever the case is, you've got a body that's on fire, a brain that's on fire. And mindfulness mm-hmm. is a way to really bring all that back down and really kind of decrease the inflammation, if you will, and help somebody start to heal in a deeper way. And it actually gives them more traction to do the other work they have to do when they're more present. That's exactly right. That's the beauty of mindfulness is that, um, I like how you say, you know, that brain on fire, um, uh, uh, now, or, uh, you know, a, a picture that I give to clients to, to think about is just imagine that you have a thermostat that you're able to control. Hmm. You know, if you came in, if you woke up in the middle of the night and your thermostat somehow had been nudged up to a hundred degrees and your house was just, you know, super hot and you're, you know, stuffy and you're going to go over there and change the, the thermostat with addiction. It feels like you have no control over the thermostat. It feels like you don't understand what's driving that thermostat. It feels like this invisible force that's suddenly turning up the thermostat for no apparent reason. Wow. We know that is right. Something going on in the nervous system in the limbic system. It's where the brain is wired and brains are wired very early. We understand that they're wired. The nervous system is wired in you know, in vitro, when that little, you know, child is in utero, and, you know, just floating and growing and forming, and all of these amazing embryonic fluids. But if mom, you know, was, you know, highly stressed, or had an anxiety disorder, or was dealing with trauma herself, perhaps 
addiction, whatever it is, then we have, you know, part of that embryonic bath that that little fetus is growing in is also going to contain high levels of cortisol and high levels of adrenaline. And so that child may already, you know, be born wired toward a more on fire brain, if you will. And so teaching clients mindfulness tools and practicing that with them as clinicians, I think, how can we not do that in this day and age of all of this empirical evidence that we have now that mindfulness is impacting um, outcomes for clients and human beings? I think that there is a, frankly, and put it out there, you know, Jeff, I think it's a disservice if we don't bring mindfulness work into our clinical practice. This is going to be a no-brainer within 10 years from now. Clients are going to be looking for clinicians who are experienced and certified in mindfulness work because clients are smart. They're doing their research and they know what works and they know what doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I'm curious, how do you how do you integrate mindfulness into your practice uh, with your clients? What does that look like for both traumatized partners and of course people that are struggling with addictions? Well, that would be going into an entire treatment plan. It's a great question, <laughs> right? You know, so it's 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 a wonderful question, but I I don't want to bore bore your listeners, you know, with the complexities of how we weave that in. Of course, first of all, it is based on the individual, but the the very first thing that we do, you know, is we take a look and we assess you know, we go through the assessment process with that human being, you know, um, just because somebody's coming in and saying, you know, I'm a sex addict or my wife, you know, spouse mandated me in here. And so I guess I'm a sex addict. That may or may not be true. You know, we first of all do a thorough assessment on that human being. Right. And so, you know, what is that looking like? You know, uh, mind, uh, body and spirit, you know, bio, social, uh, psycho assessment, um, on that human being, are they actually dealing with OCD? Is it an anxiety disorder? Is this person bipolar? What are we dealing with here? What's really happening here? And if we do, in fact, after going through the assessment process, and that requires some online assessments as well, we find out that yes, you know, you are struggling with, you know, hyper, what we call right, hyper um, sexuality, a, a, a compulsivity around sexuality, then let's start, you know, working on that. Um, piece of it. So those are cognitive tasks and tools that are assigned to the client in the beginning, uh, homework, if you will. And the cognitive tools are important in the beginning because it really helps uh, create a safe container. And the way that I put it, Jeff, is, you know, when I'm working with a client, I'll say, listen, you know, you've been the captain of your ship for a long time now, and you keep steering your ship into the coral reef and crashing <laughs> your ship. Yeah, And exactly. so I'm going to be the captain now on your ship. And what I mean by that is I am going to be teaching you some tools and tasks, and, and that'll come through reading. It'll come through exercises. It'll come through adjunct support, through oftentimes 12-step, working with a sponsor, group therapy, a number of things, right, and in order to help get your ship back on calm waters and then you're going to be practicing these cognitive tools and working with me. And we're going to do some process work and homework and so forth, you know, um, kind of your standard cognitive behavioral therapy work so that we can get your boat off this coral reef, 
you know, repair it and get it onto clear waters here. And then eventually you're going to be taking over that steering wheel while I observe. And eventually you'll be doing well. And why this is really important is this really helps that addict who feels out of control, scared, fearful, shame-filled to feel like, okay, this therapist knows exactly what she's talking about. Thank God somebody can be in charge because I am really screwing up here and I need a direction and a roadmap. And so that's the beauty of cognitive, that task model, right? The cognitive model. However, while that is great for short-term recovery without weaving in mindfulness work and mindfulness work is about body movement. It's about, um, yes, you know, breath. It's about, yes, you know, guided imagery. There's so prayer sometimes, music. It's it's just a lot of various tools that we're teaching clients mm-hmm. and we're educating them about their limbic system, about what's going on and how to actually visualize what's happening in their body and just stay really present, especially when they're triggered in that first year of therapy. And while, so when we begin to weave in those particular mindfulness tasks and tools, then the client is actually starting to feel like they have some control and healing, like deep healing in that right hemisphere of the brain. Um, They're starting to see um, that corporate corpus callosum, what we want to call, you know, the, the, what I call the gear shifter of the brain, you know, it's like oil on the gear shifter of the brain. We're starting to see that cooling in the amygdala, which is that little tiny hot center of the brain. We're just noticing changes in the brain and the nervous system as that client can calmly regulate themselves and manage those um, triggers and if we're talking about a partner, manage the triggers around her trauma and hypervigilance. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, I love that, and I and that's that's essentially what I, I appreciate the breakdown of the cognitive and and adding this this mindfulness piece as part of that because I think a lot of therapy focuses a lot of times on just tasks and yes. getting someone sort of out of the ditch. And all, like you said, all that's very important in terms of strategies and techniques and tools and, and cognitive understanding. But, but you said like coming back to yourself is so critical and it makes you a safer person for yourself. It makes you a safer person for your relationships. Oh, beautiful. Beautifully stated. And sorry about interruption there. No, that is exactly right. And what I was going to say, Jeff, is, and if there's no there, there, what do you return to? Yeah. If there's no sense of self and identity, or if the identity is shame-based, if the core schema, the core identity in that human being is, I'm a screw-up, I'm a mess, I'm a loser, or I'm, you know, not worth loving, or I'm whatever, you know, or I will be abandoned by everyone, I will be hurt, you know, whatever the core schema, that message, that I statement message that is present so often in partners who are traumatized and hurting, you know, but there's a trauma there often with partners that pre-existed, that the relationship with the addict and so that's what we want to dig into as well gently we're not just yanking roots out we're using mindfulness to get in there and seeing okay let's see where those seeds were first planted yeah what do we need to in away what do we need to replant there where do we need to fertilize what do we need to water so that we can help you blossom into a different human being. But if there is no there, there, there's no identity to return to, or the identity that the person keeps trying to return to is shame-based or abandonment-based, 
then that's great to teach these cognitive tools that can get them, you know, like you say, out of the ditch, off the coral reef. But eventually the human being using those cognitive tools, the addict in recovery, the partner in her healing recovery, we have to look at what is at the core of that human being. And that's where mindfulness can help do this gentle, thorough, deep dive. Yeah, That's why I'm such a proponent of it because we've seen we've just seen the outcomes they're they're you know it's it's they're it's huge yeah you know, huge outcomes that people experience yeah and I, I find that if if clients you know i think there's a temptation for both clinicians and clients working through these issues these different types of issues to it, it you know the, the the task work makes you feel productive and naturally it is but but i think it also if it stays if it stays so tax task centered you actually like you said you actually don't ever get to acquaint yourself with that deep core self. And sometimes that deep core self isn't going to surface if you're just so busy doing tasks. And in fact, you might even fool yourself into believing that you feel better about yourself than you actually really do. And so I know in my own mindfulness work that I've done, my own meditation practice, and um, that, that a lot of the time sitting with those things, um, when I stop the busyness, when I stop all the movement, um, man, those things are pretty sobering, pretty tough to face. And then I have a choice. I have a choice about what I'm going to do with that and how I'm going to either heal the shame messages or I'm going to heal, uh, you know, some of those voices that are just uh, coming in. And um, I, I think if we don't offer that to our clients or to each other as we're trying to, to help each other heal with these issues and to ourselves, um, we're, we could, like Brene says, we can just spend the rest of our lives trying to hustle for worthiness instead of just stopping and recognizing that there's there's a self there that needs some attention and there might be some damage there. And we don't have to be afraid to face it, that we can actually heal it better if we can sit with it and, and pay attention to it and name it. And so I think mindfulness is one of the most powerful ways to get to it. I think it's one of the only ways to get to it, in my experience. I, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. And I just loved what you said there. It's so true. And it remind you know, it really brings that idea up that, you know, I think that the cognitive tests and tools that are really important, right, to help that person get back on track, that's great for the behavior and changing behavior for a period of time. Mindfulness helps fill the hole in the soul. I love that. Mindfulness gets in there and does the deep surgery, if you will, so that that human being is able to do what? Build insight go into deep healing, you know, working with men who, gosh, are stoic when all, oh, all right. suddenly, and I know you have this experience as well, right, Jeff, where we're with that person and they're sharing something maybe about their dad or sharing something about high school. And then all of a sudden I'll see the expression on that man's face. Maybe he's in his fifties, suddenly look like I'm speaking with a 14 year old young man. Yeah. Boy. And I'll just pause that client and say, wow, the expression on your face, I felt like I was just looking at you when you were 14 years old. And my heart just, you know, I have a lump in the back of my throat as you describe your dad, you know, getting angry with you for spilling paint in the garage and humiliating you in front of your friends. And I just have such a lump in my throat because, you know, you're really hard on yourself and you're a perfectionist and a workaholic and you're tough on yourself and your language. 
much and so shame-based. And then all of a sudden, I'll see that man begin to tear up. Now, I'm not Oprah. I'm not Barbara Walters. I'm not looking (laughs) to make my clients cry, you know, but I'll see that release and I'll see suddenly that mindfulness that he's very present with his inner child. He's very present in the work immediately with me. He's no longer trying to check off boxes and get out of therapy. He's not just doing therapy. Now he is in recovery and he's there with me. Yeah. And I'll lean over and I'll say, may I just, may I, t- may I, grab, may I hold your hand? And he'll say, absolutely. Mm-hmm. He'll just weep there. You know, the whole body shaking and weeping. I'll say, it's okay. You know, this is this is what that inner child has been waiting for, for you to really show up fully present for that woundedness. And we're not here to vilify your dad. We're just here to show up for that 14-year-old that, you know, just felt like there was nobody there that he could talk to that really understood him, where he wasn't going to get in trouble all the time. And you're doing good, and I'm proud of you. That is a form of mindfulness. And we therapists, we have to then challenge ourselves i think in a gentle way not to be afraid of being really mindfully present with clients we have to move our cognitive brains like okay who's my next client what's my schedule looking like today okay how many more minutes in the session although all of those boundaries are important we need to be aware of all of that it's so important for us to slow down stay present with the client. In my supervision, Jeff, one of the questions that I get a lot is, well, how can I help that client just get sober? How do I do that? How do I help this partner stop, you know, circling the drain every week? She's talking about the same thing. And I'll say, make room for her. Stay present with her. Mm -hmm. Be mindful of her. And then I teach them mindfulness tools to teach their clients. But And they come back and say, wow, when I slowed down and realized that I was feeling Like there was something wrong with me as a therapist because my client wasn't healing, quote unquote, fast enough. And I began to practice mindfulness and work game changer. So, yeah, it it is a game changer. Yeah, I love that. And and, and just wrapping up here, you shared so many important things. I wish we could talk about this for two or three hours. I just have so many questions and so much uh, interest in this topic. And. But I, I do want our listeners to understand more about where they can find more information about this. And for any clinicians that are listening or people that are listening that have a therapist uh, to be aware of some some uh, some new training that's available for clinicians who want to deepen their uh, toolbox and actually become more proficient in uh, treating their clients using mindfulness-based strategies. Can you talk more about that? I would be very happy to do that. And thank you for that opportunity to share, Jeff. So my um, after doing this for years, uh, along with a, a wonderful colleague that I believe you know, um, Darren Ford, who's also um, a sex addiction therapist and works with couples and, and partner trauma. And he's got several um, clinics around Southern California, just a wonderful therapist. Uh, he and I co-founded uh, just last year, the Mindfulness Academy for Addiction and Trauma Training in Newport Beach, and or what we call TMAT. Uh, again, it's the Mindfulness Academy for Addiction and Trauma Training. And we teach therapists, we train therapists through the MBAT certification, which is the Mindfulness-Based Addiction Therapist. So we're working with therapists, and it's a three-level training 
two in person, one uh, via uh, internet so that we can provide that convenience for therapists. It's affordable, um, you know, and, and we're, yeah, we're training them through the certification process. So any therapist who may be listening to this program, if you are interested in incorporating uh, mindfulness um, in a very intentional, specific way, learning tools and tasks that can help your clients through sex addiction, other addictions, and trauma, you are more than welcome to go to TMAT, and that is T-M-A-A-T-T.com, T-M-A-A-T-T.com. And you can uh, be added, you can just sign right up to the MBAT training waitlist. Uh, we do have a waitlist right now, and um, and we'll be very happy to send you information and um, chat with you and, and offer, you know, any support that we can. So I hope that that is helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'm going to put the links uh, for you listeners. I'll put that in the show notes so that you can just click right on it and go straight to that website and uh, use it as a resource. And then as far as other listeners who aren't looking necessarily for clinical training, but for their own mindfulness work, um, do you have resources on that same website or are there places where they can get an introduction to mindfulness? Uh, yes, there are, there are um, definitely resources on tmat.com. Um, they are welcome to reach out to Darren and I um, via email. Um, they can reach out info at tmat.com or um, mari at tmat.com and just reach out and we're very happy to share any resources at all if this is no, you know non-clinical um, folks. There's so much going on out there and we'd be more than happy to plug them in um, depending on what area of the U.S. or the world that they're living in. No problem at all. Happy to be of support that way. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's great. And eventually, eventually, oh, I should add, Jeff, uh-huh. um, one last Eventually, we will have a directory on TMAT of mindfully-based MBAT therapists who are trained in the TMAT certification that will be available and will, you know, compile a large directory of therapists all over, you know, the world where clients can just access that for free and find that therapist who has that training to support them. Oh, that's fabulous. That's great. So yeah. I'll put links to all this, uh, everyone, in the show notes so that you can access this. And uh, and then also Mari's contact information so you guys can get a hold of her and and uh, she can be of support to you. So thank you. Thank you so much, Mari, for the work you're doing and also for taking time to come on here and uh, help educate us about mindfulness and how it can help people. You are very welcome, Jeff. Thank you very much for opening up this conversation. It's been a real honor and privilege to be here with you. And um, I'm just so grateful for the amazing work that you are doing in the world. I'm just, you know, thrilled and delighted to um, have this time with you and very grateful for the resources that you provide as well. So thanks. It was a great conversation. If you want to learn more about Mari and her clinical work, you can visit her at growthcounselingservices.com and her coaching site is thecounselorscoach.com. And both of those websites, you can subscribe to her email newsletter, follow her on social media, and discover all the wonderful resources that she has available for both clinicians and people that want healing. And she's just a great resource, as you can tell. So thank you so much, Mari, for taking time to visit with us today. And we look forward to having you back on a future episode. In fact, I'm going to have Mari back and we're going to talk about the difference between being a giver and a taker and what that all means in relationships. And so I'm just going to leave it right there because it's a great topic and it's something that I look forward to exploring with her some more. 
And I also want to let you know there's about a week left for the pre-launch discount on my 12-week online trust-building bootcamp course. That's 50% off until October 15th, and then it will be full price after that. And this course is for anyone who has broken trust. If you want to learn how to rebuild trust in a relationship that you have betrayed or you've damaged, then this course is absolutely for you. It's 12 weeks of me sharing everything I know about how to rebuild trust in an intimate relationship and helping you take the necessary steps to be able to become a trustworthy person and create conditions where trust is more likely to be rebuilt. I'm really excited to share this course. I've been working hard on it for over a year. Actually, I've been working on it my entire career, but putting it together for the past year. And it's chock full of information videos, but most importantly, it will give you a structure and very step-by-step guidance on how to create conditions where trust can be rebuilt. And so if you're someone that has broken trust and you're trying to figure out what in the world you're supposed to do to help repair things, this course is absolutely for you. And I'm looking forward to it as well. And there'll be some bonuses with it. So go check it out. Um, I put the link in the show notes, but you can go to trustbuildingacademy.com and find it there and check out the Trust Building Bootcamp. Thank you so much again for listening to the Illuminate podcast, and I will see you in the next episode.